Hey y'all, welcome to episode 3 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast. This week it's been 126 years since aviation pioneer Otto Lilienthal crashed his glider at the end of his final flight, so today we're going to be talking about why he's considered the father of aviation. Joining me is the director of the National Soaring Museum in Elmira, New York, Trap Doherty. Well, I, I really appreciate you you meeting me like this. I know you're busy. Well, it's my, my you know, it's part of my job is educate people on gliding and soaring. So it's, it's all part of the deal. It's I'm glad to do it. Happy to do it. My calling, I guess. My father flew in World War II. And uh, so I've been with airplanes all my life. I um, was raised in Hammondsport, New York, which is where Glenn Curtis is from. So I knew about Glenn Curtis a long time ago. But I worked for a company here in Elmira, as did my father, called Schweitzer Aircraft. This is starting back in the 60s. I was working for a line boy, at a line, as a line boy. I was working as a line boy in a soaring school, teaching people how to fly gliders. And I did that line boy thing for about five years. And I became an instructor and a tow pilot. And I was there for quite a few years. Got quite a few hours instructing and towing gliders. So that's my experience in the background of, with gliding and soaring. Uh, then we left, my wife and I left uh, the area in 1980, moved on to the Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I did work in manufacturing. And I came back to the Curtis Museum, which I was very familiar with, in Hammondsport in 2002. I was there for 14 years and came down here. They had an opening for a director. So I thought I'd try to come back with the gliders after a while. So hey, after 40-some years, I came back with the gliders. And I've been director here for about six years. Okay. So that's my aviation background. And it's, uh, no, that's, that's my background. Okay, so what did your uh, what did your father fly in uh, World War II? My father flew a lot, a lot of different things. He flew Spitfires for a while, but oh, then wow. he he actually trained in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He joined the Royal Canadian Air Force in 1941, and in 43 transferred to the American Air Force. He didn't think he didn't have a choice, and he was actually in a, lining up on a photo reconnaissance squadron, flying Spitfires. And he actually got some time in Spitfires, but they rotated him out, and he went to flying C-47s. He spent the rest of the war flying C-47s. Then he went to work for Schweitzer Aircraft himself, after, you know, the, more more recently, and uh, I joined that too as, as a young kid working for Flying Time. But no, he's uh, flew most of his life. He's learned to fly before the war here, actually locally. There's a fellow in Corning, New York, about eight miles from here, where Dad learned to fly in 1938. Okay. So that's cool. We have a background in aviation on all sides of the family, really. Yeah. So you fly gliders and uh, powered aircraft as well, or? Flew both. I haven't done much flying in a while, but yes, I have commercial rating in both single engine land and gliders, and an instructor's rating in gliders. Okay. So how would you how would you say the uh, two compare the you know powered versus non powered flight? Um, is is one harder than the other? Are they just different? Uh, it seems that the non powered would the stakes are a little bit higher because if you mess up, you can't just add power. There's less to go wrong with glider. Okay. Less systems. There's no engine to quit. There's no radios to fail. There's no instruments to fail. And because you don't fly in instrument conditions, you don't fly at night. You're flying cross country these days, of course, it's all GPS. But it's it's it, things happen slowly in the glider too. You're cruising cross country at maybe sixty to seventy miles an hour or more now with these modern sailplanes. Where in an airplane, you're getting there much faster. You may not know where you're going, but you're getting there quickly. <laughs> uh, it's not hard to fly a glider. You take a Piper Cub, for example, and you have a your left hand's on a throttle but you have a stick in your hand for ailerons and elevators and your rudder pedals for the rudder. That's the same exact control system as in a Piper Cub as in a glider. The only difference is your left hand is operating a dive brake, which is a variable panel that comes out of the wings, adding a lot of drag and killing a lot of lift. So you can vary it and vary your descent down to landing with a great degree of accuracy. 
It's not hard to teach people to do that. You know, the average person, after about 20 flights, instruction flights, actually solo a glider. Okay. So the, the learning curve is shorter because you don't have instrument flying to deal with, radio navigation, some exposure to night flying, those kinds of things, cross country and so on. So from an instructional standpoint, it's, it's a lot more straightforward. You just learn to manipulate the aircraft. And they're easy to fly. The modern sailplane is, they're easy to fly. They're for, very forgiving. People make mistakes. The lighter weight, weight for you to correct them sort of thing. Not always, but usually. So, yeah, they're easier to fly than airplane because they're less complex, basically. That makes sense. And quite safe. I, I was at that school for, affiliate with the school for 16 years. We had hundreds of thousands of flights, and we had no accidents, no injuries at all, zero. Before we start talking about Lilienthal, I'd like to take a minute to recognize this week's Plaid Pilot Podcast Aviator of the Week. Congratulations to Daniel, all the way from Australia, who recently completed his first solo flight. So that's a huge deal. Uh, anybody who's done it will tell you that's something you never forget. Your instructor usually uh, hops out of the airplane and says, uh, go do some touch and goes. And it's definitely definitely different experience, uh, life-changing experience, so... I'm super excited for you. Uh, can't wait to see what you do in the future with aviation. If you want to check out Daniel's Instagram, see what he's doing over there, I'll link to it in the show notes. You can check that out. Uh, and if you are have recently hit an aviation milestone or you know somebody who's recently hit an aviation milestone and you or they would be interested in uh, being the Plaid Pilot Podcast Aviator or Aviatrix of the Week, uh, please reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at the Plaid Pilot. Uh, or you can email me at Todd at thepladpilot.com. Uh, I also have a Facebook page. It's just the Plaid Pilot Podcast. Uh, feel free to go over there, like that page, and reach out to me over there if you want to. Uh, as always, if you want to just come over, say hi, anything like that, I'd love to hear from you. All right, now on to Otto Lilienthal. Today we're here to uh, we're here to talk about one of the probably the first successful uh, at the time called glider pilots, Otto Lilienthal, right? So, uh, just kind of a brief summary of uh, his his time before he really got into aviation. He always loved flight. Uh, he was born in 1848 in Prussia, which would later become Germany after the unification. And he, I guess, him and his brother Gustav, and you may know the answer why Gustav isn't as well known as Otto. I guess Otto's not very well known either. Well, in flying circles, Otto is, but Gustav, I, I wouldn't, I could, yesterday couldn't told you his his brother's name. I just right. read it on Google myself. So there we are, there we are now, the height of our research. I, I've known about Lilienthal for years. The Germans say Lilienthal. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's interesting how he influenced some people and others he did not. But you're, you're, go ahead, finish what you were saying, Todd. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no. So him and his brother, they like to study, uh, they studied the flight of birds uh, from a very young age. They were very interested in. I guess they had a lot of storks in the area uh, where he was yeah. grew up, and and they watched those. And they would try while they were young. They tried, you know, strap on the wings um, to see if they could do it. They could not do it at the time. Uh, it's likely they try very hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> could have gone poorly. Jumping off the roof with a flap, a set of wings they made, and go plumbing right. around. Yeah, that's happened more than once. I no, believe I, that. I, I do that too. It's very interesting. He. Of course, he was a, professionally speaking, he was a mechanical engineer, well-educated, 
And his business, his, his livelihood was designing and building boilers and steam engines, small boilers and small steam engines, if that was his business. But for a while there, of course, he got went in the Prussian army and fought in this Franco-Prussian war. I guess that was what the war was. That kind of de detoured his progress a little bit. Then he got back in the 18, gee, I was, 1874, he started really study carefully the effects of flight. And what fascinated him is the shape of wings and how they generated lift versus drag. Now, we refer to L over D, lift over drag. That's the coefficient that we use to compare one glider against another. The higher the L over D, it means it glides farther. High L over D sailplanes are your hot competition sailplanes of the day. And an L over D ratio or glide ratio, say 40 to 1, means if you're up a mile, you can glide 40 miles and still air. Now, training gliders, like the one I used to instruct in, where it had glide ratios of 18 to 20 to 1, for example. So they, they didn't glide very far, but they're easy to fly and very forgiving, which is what you want in a trainer. But he established principles. He wrote his book, 1889. We talk about the bird, bird flight as the basis of aviation. His name was book written in 1889. And that's two years before he actively started flying. He wanted to work everything theoretically before he actually even started to experiment with, with trying to fly something. I thought that was really interesting. I, I assume yeah, me too. when I knew about the knew about the book, but I when I started looking at it, I said, like, well, he wrote this book before he had, you know, seriously done or he had done any man flight. So it was all uh theory, but you can still purchase the book today. I looked it up uh it's on Amazon if you want to uh to get it. And uh, I, I I would love to read it. I guess it's uh, still has some relevance. Hopefully in Europe, not in German. Hope is in English. <laughs> in, in 1911, it was uh, it was translated to, to an English version. That's a good thing. That's a yeah. good thing. What's interesting in that in that book is this famous polar diagram, and it basically the study of drag versus lift coefficients on different shapes of airfoils. And birds, of course, can vary their airfoils at any time they want. They are talk about variable geometry. That's a bird. <laughs> That's how they do it, right? They sure do. They, they don't use ailerons and so on. They twist their wings, which is what the Wright brothers tuned in on, twisting wings, warping wings, if you will. But he, this, this treatise of, that he wrote and this diagram, this polar diagram, aerodynamicists of today still refer to as the term is Lilienthal's polars. Lilienthal's polars, that's the term. And they still study those today when they're designing airfoils. And that was a long time ago. Yeah, but he, he wrote stuff in, back in 1889 or there at that point in time that is still applicable today to to aircraft engineers, which this is amazing. You think about it. Yeah, it really is. One thing I wanted to share with you, um, I have a list here. I just made it out. We are not even rough, remotely aware of all the people who were experimenting with gliding and flight back in, in the 19th century. I'm only aware of a few of them. There are many more. There, I was looking at a book recently, and this person, the author, was listing all these various people from various countries all over Europe and the United States who I had never heard of. And I can't repeat that. I have to go back and make a list from that book. But, for example, George Cayley, Sir George Cayley from England. He designed in, in 1804, he designed a little hand glider. You threw it like you little balsa gliders you can buy in the store today. Right. It had a lifting surface, a fuselage, and in the on a piece of wire behind the fuselage, at the end of the fuselage, was a vertical fin and a horizontal stabilizer together in a, in a cross configuration. And you could bend the wire to trim it. 1804. That's incredible. And he, he experimented with gliders now, not, not powered aircraft, gliders, 
from basically 1804 to 1853. And he's credited with building the first man-carrying glider in 1853. His butler was elected to be the pilot and was, <laughs> was told by a told by another vehicle, maybe a locomotive. I don't know what they, they used to get going fast enough. But it had a tiller, and he basically steered the thing with a tiller. There's a picture of this guy flying this thing. And folklore says that after the flight was over, he, the butler quit, and that was the end of the flying experiments for uh, Cayley because he wouldn't get else to get near one. <laughs> but there was a Frenchman named Libri, 1856 to 1868, who was active designing gliders. Lillian Tall, of course, was actually actively flying from 91 to 96, but working on the, the concepts much before that, starting 1874. Octave Chanute in the United States was the American soaring guru, and believe it or not, there was such a thing. People, the Wright brothers, Curtis, many, many people referred to the structural analysis and so on of uh, designs by Chanute. Chanute was a, he was also, he was a structural engineer designing bridges for the railroads. Okay. Build these huge trestles over rivers and things for the railroads. So he was an expert on truss construction. Now with, uh, with Chanute, he had actually, so... The bird flight is the basis of aviation wasn't published in English until 1911. But if I'm correct, Chanute had actually published his own book where he compiles a lot of those findings from uh, Lilienthal and others. Uh, and he actually communicated Lilienthal. Right. Yeah. They wrote letters back and forth. And then the Wright brothers communicated directly with uh, Chanute. And so he was kind of the middleman between uh, Otto and, and the Wright brothers. Is that correct? Yes. I think that probably is correct. I just going to say the, um, Chronologically, um, in the United States, the first glider flights were made out in California in 1883 by a man named Montgomery. Okay, I did not know that. Yep, he had a flyable glider in 1883 in California. And of course, Schnuten is, is experimenting with Augustus Herring in the 1890s. So that's what's going on. There were other people experimenting, jumping off roofs and so on with bird wings and so on throughout the country. But a similar thing was going on in, in Europe as well. I mean, any country you can name, there's somebody experimenting, even Australia, experimenting with some kind of flying apparatus. But Lilienthal, is his, his efforts were extraordinary. Um, let's talk about this uh, hill that he built for launching his flights. Now, he made 2,000 glider flights, not all from this hill that he built, but from other areas as well. But he built the hill, or had the hill made, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the idea was, if it's a conical-shaped hill which is what it was. It was a pile of dirt, basically. Uh, you could launch in any direction the wind was blowing. So you'd have a headwind, no matter what the conditions were, you could make sure you had a headwind. As long as the wind was blowing from whatever direction, you would be able you to just... face into the wind. Now, the only thing wrong with that is when you have a cone, the wind would hit the cone and go around it as much as go over it. Okay. So unless you say it right on the center line coming down, you're going to have a crosswind to deal with. But that's that's the, that's the least of Lillian Toss issues. But I'm fascinated, Todd, how did he build that that hill. Uh, it was 45, millimeter, 45 meters high at an angle of repose of about 20 degrees. So if you do the math, you come up with a, a diameter of a base circle of about 100 yards. That's an incredible amount of dirt. It's if you just stacked a huge pile of dirt on a football field, essentially, made the football exactly. field into a pile of dirt. And that's 40, 45 feet at the peak. That was about a 20 degree angle going down. He was I don't know how you managed to figure this out, but the angle of the repose of the hill at 20 degrees was slightly steeper than in the glide of his, his actual glider, his gliders, the angle of glider, glide angle. So if you look at some of the pictures, of which there are many, he's, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet in the air when he gets to the bottom, which is about as high as you want to be. His demise was caused by being too high in the air. He lost control right. and wasn't able to 
Washington's in a bad situation. We can talk about that later in the in the talk. But I am amazed at that hill. That's a lot of that's a lot of picking and shoveling, and wheelbarrowing. When you think about it. <laughs> yeah, at the, at the time that was the only way you were going to have to exactly. walk up to the hill and and drop more. He must have had a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, for a while, then after a while, they probably hated him. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe he paid him well. And that hill is still there today. I mean, still obviously, there. as large as it was, yeah. it's going to stand for a while. But they have a monument now. Uh, on top of the hill. They do indeed. The, yeah, it's called the Fliegerberg. Das Fliegerberg, which means flying mountain okay. in German. But, which is a fitting name for it, I guess. <laughs> it is. Very much so. Very much so. The, you, we mentioned here, uh, he was more correct than the Wright brothers. He was in certain ways. They, The Wrights, this is the funny saying about the Wrights, the Wrights copy no one, no one copied the Wright brothers because they did things their way and they, they achieved substantial results, but they did it in ways that other people after a while got away from. Right. Uh, the airfoil shapes that Lilienthal devised were later rejected by the Wright brothers. Then they put them through wind tunnel study and so on. But there were stability issues. Uh, if you look at a, uh, upper, a profile of the Lilienthal glider, it's, it's bird-shaped, essentially. The tail feathers and, and the wing shapes roughly like a bird. The Wrights never went in that direction. They went actually with Chanute's theories, two parallel wings basically with struts and wires forming a truss. But where they varied hugely, it was their method of control. And they were correct, quite correct, that weight shift control had no future. Chanute with, went with weight shift. We have a Chanute hang glider here in the museum. It's, a, it's like a box kite with a tail sticking out the back. And the, 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 the traps, you put your, under your armpits, you hold onto it and you... Step off the hill, run down, and glide basically down the contour of the hill. That's a weight shift. You throw your legs forward, put the nose down. You put you throw your legs back to, to try to get the nose back up. And to the right, to turn right or correct it. If your left wing drops, you throw your feet to the right. Of course, the Lillian tall glider was controlled the same way. And it's, it takes a while. Also, the larger the glider, the slower it is to respond to weight shift. It, at some point, I imagine it just becomes prohibitive size prohibitive there's exactly a point where the, the bigger they got the less responsive and the rights they targeted that right away that's absolutely not the way to go so they came up with ways of control service with pitch yaw and roll of course now they did it in ways that you know later on people got away from the warping wing worked to a point it created a tremendous amount of adverse yaw the rights course and this isn't about the rights about Lillian Tall. I just quickly say that the rights did their their gliding experiments from 1900 to 1903. Basically, put an engine on the 1902 right glider, and they had essentially essentially had the uh, right flyer. Orville came back to Kitty Hawk in 1911. He took a right model B, took the engine, the props off it, and brought it back. He wanted to see if he could stay aloft for an extended period on the rising air coming up the slope at Kitty Hawk, what we today call slope soaring. And he stayed up for. Nine minutes and 45 seconds, he made the first soaring flight in the world where someone stayed up for an extended period on, on air currents. So the Wrights were first in power flight in 1903 and first in soaring in 1911. Now I'll leave the Wrights behind for that. Now back to, to Lilienthal, he doesn't get that far. He's still a, 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 a weight shift control man. Uh, I would say to your listeners, um, obviously you can Google Otto Lilienthal, if you know how to spell Lilienthal, L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. But in there, you're going to find, obviously, lots of pictures of Lilienthal flying off his hill and other places. But you'll also also find in there some modern-day videos. Uh, 
a year ago, we had a contest. What's the contest? A meet, actually, of antique gliders. We call it the International Vintage Sailplane Meet. We had them every four years. We had one last summer. And a fellow named Marcus Roffel came over here. And he brought with him a totally accurate reproduction of a, excuse me, Lillian Tall glider. And we put it together in our lobby and it filled the lobby. It's, it's bigger than you think, but light, weighs about 60 pounds. And he, of course, did a, did a talk for us and so on, a video and so on. He and his associates in Germany have built several different Lillian Tall gliders and he has flown them successfully. It went through a horrendous uh, learning curve. But these videos are very explicit in how they went through the training and finally got to the point where you could jump, go down a slope flying this thing. But it was very difficult to fly, very difficult. Now, it's interesting. Lilling Tall actually was in the business of selling these things. He sold a half a dozen of them, they think, uh, six or nine of them, to various customers. And a couple of them still exist in museums uh, sold to those customers by Lilling Tall. So he was actually the – he had the first – uh, official aircraft production company. I guess that'd be true. That would be true. Now, that, that makes sense. I can certainly can't find a problem with that statement. But Lilienthal also was, he was a way shift pilot. And he, when you see the contortions, it was described as acrobatic. The people flying these things, they had an acrobatic, I don't mean aerobatics, I mean acrobatics, where they're throwing their bodies around like to keep this thing under control. And a, a person had to be in really good physical condition to fly this thing for more than a few seconds. Fortunately, Fortunately for them, you didn't stay up for an hour. You stay up for your flight, your flight durations were measured in seconds generally. But when you watch Marcus fly this thing, you see what he has to go through. And it's here's the interesting caveat. He described this to us: uh, the way to flare to land. When you're coming to land, you want to put the nose up so it slows down. Your feet settle to the ground nicely, like a bird. You know, perfect. But you're coming down, and the way to bring the nose up is to put your feet back which is where you don't want them back away from the ground that's coming up to meet you. And it's not intuitive. You have to force yourself to put your feet back, stick out your chin. Cause if it works right, then the nose will come up and you put your feet back out there and you can sit down on your feet. If it's wrong, then you dig a trench in the sand with your chin, which he, I'm sure Marcus did more than once. I'm sure the, of course the Wright brothers did that a few times in the sand as well, but that's the tricky thing. It's it, and it also, you have to be great physical condition to throw your legs around like that. I wouldn't want to try it personally. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's that's the limitation of weight shift con control and hang gliders. Today's modern hang glider, if they even call them in anymore, the, these things, the, you have you have a bar out front, which you move side to side for roll control and back and forth for pitch. And they're, they're So it's braced. all just in the arms on the modern day? Oh, yes, yeah, all in the arms. You're not moving your body at all. Your body's suspended by wires, which sounds scary, but that's that's what it is. These <laughs> things fly very well. For a flying machine, they're relatively safe, but you have to remember you are up in the air. Right. The rule of thumb back in Lillian Tall's day, but don't don't fly higher than you're willing to fall. And unfortunately he did. This last flight he was flying in gusty, turbulent conditions, which he was not he was loath to do, but he, he wanted to make this flight anyway, so he did. And he got higher than usual and apparently the glider pitched up so he had a gust of wind hit him or a thermal, something bumped him, tipped the nose to a high angle of attack. And by the time he got it back under control, he was heading straight to the ground and was not able to recover because just it just doesn't recover, it doesn't respond that quickly. It and sounds like he control. almost he stalled it, and then that stalled the nose drop, and he was unable to recover with that. That's what people surmise, right? Now this was not at his hill. The this was not at the the flying mountain that he had built. This was uh, okay. Rhinau Hills, where I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Rhinau. Uh, but it was one of the places that he had conducted some other experiments with his gliders. It's probably a steep drop off, and for a while he's probably quite high off the ground because 
It said he was at 15 meters above the ground. Well, 15 meters is 45 feet. It's right. a long ways up. You'd never get that high off his, off his, the uh, Fliegeberger because it's just, it's, you're, you're gliding down the same angle. The mountain's going down only slightly less. So I right. wondered about that. That makes sense. Right, yeah. I, I imagine the ground would drop out. But uh, from I think he chose this location because the, the terrain was such he was getting flights of over 800 feet. So going back to you know the Wright brothers, their first flight um, – at Kitty Hawk was 120 feet, I 110, believe. 110, something like that. Yeah, and so he's doing, you know, seven, eight times that distance. The hill would have to be far, much longer. Uh, right. Because you're not, you're not soaring, per se. You might have gotten some lift from something, but to get that far down, if, if you know, if you, Lillian Tall took a step off in front of Harris Hill, we have an 800-foot ridge here, and it's quite steep. He would wind up, he'd probably go a thousand, he'd probably do a quarter of a mile. Right. But, You'd have to have a lot of intestinal fortitude to do that. Now, modern hang glider, they step off these hills all the time. We see them flying. I've seen, I've seen days where we have turkey buzzards, hang gliders, and regular sailplanes all flying together on this ridge out here back and forth. That's quite a sight. But bet, we, see, yeah. we see a fair amount of hang glider flying here. We have a couple different launch sites nearby. Okay. Yeah, I guess the, the glide ratio on his, the one that he was seeing this uh, 800, 820 feet, uh, gliding distance, I think I saw that it was something like four to one. It was not, I, that's what I heard around four to one. So not especially by today's standards was, uh, so th- did, uh, were you able to find what, uh, his last words were reported to be? Yes. Uh, I won't give you the German translation, but sacrifices must be made. Yeah. And that's, that's actually written on his tombstone. Um, and I think that's really in German. In German. Yeah. Yeah. In German, not in English. Um, but I think that that's really, if if those were his last words, and there's a little bit of debate whether or not that was actually his last words, but um, there always is. But I think that's really encompasses all everything he was doing was was pretty dangerous at the time, and there was no Quite dangerous. There was a little bit of of something that he could uh, go back and look at some of these other designs, but for the most part, he was he was the first one, and so he was he was putting his life on the line every time that he he went out and did it, and we are a lot further in aviation because of you know, what he did. Oh, yes. I mean, the, his polar numbers and so on, as I say, he's, he left, he, he, he was doing part of a, a movement of people trying to find a way to fly. And he made a tremendous 2,000 glider flights. I mean, just, that's, that's the number everybody talks about. People watch, you should watch these videos that Marcus Raffle made on learning to fly and flying successfully. Uh, the uh, Yeah, I'll definitely put those in the, the show notes. Dan Hall Glider. Yeah, check it out. They're, they're worth looking at. It's, it's real. They're not. They're beautifully done. They're professionally. They go through the whole testing process. They had several stages of testing. They actually had a flatbed truck with Raffle and the glider up there, and he's tethered to the thing so you get the thing on, kind of fly it on, over over the bed of the truck, but only like his feet like this far off the bed of the truck to see how the handling would. They worked. They were that way for a while. They did this and that. And the other thing, they finally took it on the sand and tried to fly it. But Lilienthal didn't do any of that. He just basically tried to fly it. So right, strap it on and jump off a, a hill. Ralph was being careful. He's a, as I say, he's a, he has a PhD in aerodynamics, so he's, he's not he's not a he's a heavy hitter. But right. I would suggest anybody interested in Lily and Tall to look at those videos. They're fascinating. They really are. Yeah, I'll definitely put those in the in the show notes so people can can access them directly from there. One thing I found that was really interesting was the one of the things that helped him uh, be as well known as he was at the time was that it was photography was starting to really take off and mm-hmm. so uh, there's a, we can find a lot of photographs of him on 
uh, you know, at the hill and with his glider and stuff like that. So um, for some of the the aviators that came before um, Kaylee, like you were talking about, uh, I guess there are photos that exist of of him and his designs, but not to the same extent. Yeah, there's one photo of Kaylee. His his glider is an incredible looking thing. It would never have flown free flight, I suggest. It was it had a lifting surface above this carriage and a long tail. The guy's he's like he's sitting in a rowboat, flying a rowboat with a tiller in his hand, and it's being pulled by something, which is a far cry. When you're tethered to something, a lot of issues disappear. I mean, you're like a kite, really. Right, yeah. So a, a manned kite, essentially. Curtis started experimenting with a Chinook glider in the winter of 1907-1908. He and his associates. And they quickly discovered that Weight shift control was absolutely no good at all. So they had to go through that, something that the Wright brothers figured out without even having to try it. They just knew that was not the route they wanted to go. So when Curtis went there in 19, since 1907, they quickly, they did some flying across from where the museum is now, up on the hill in the snow. And it flew, but we have a, they have a reproduction of it at the Curtis Museum, but basically a Chinook design. And there's lots of pictures of Chinook gliders. They actually use electric winches on Chinook gliders. Right. They'd actually have a winch launch to get this thing up in the air, you know, hundred feet up in the air. And this, that takes guts. I mean, to do a winch launch, <laughs> a hang glider like that. You, if you just look at these things, they're like a box kite and you're hanging underneath it hundred feet off the ground. You gotta be kidding me. They did it. They were daredevils back then. Like you wouldn't believe it. Lilienthal was not a daredevil. He was a keen scientific mind pursuing a goal. We had that Lilienthal glider here, it weighed about 60 pounds. And what you want to do is you get a backpack, put 60 pounds of sand in it or something, 60 pounds of something, and first try running down a slope with it, that on your back. Then if you get to someplace with a stone wall, get, jump off the stone wall and land with a 60-pound bag on your back. Yeah, you'll feel that in your knees for sure. Right. That's, what it'd be, that's what landing that glider would be like. Yeah. I know I wouldn't be. I'd be digging a trench with my chin if I tried that. <laughs> that's what I'd do. Yeah. That he, he had to have been in incredible physical shape. My gosh, yes. And, of course, somewhat lighter than I am, I think. People my size and age don't bounce very well. I've come to that conclusion. But you think about doing that with a 60-pound pack on your back. So you you got this glider. You're, you're holding on to it as flying. But when you're landing, it's, it's, you're carrying it. And all of a sudden, right. it wants to squeeze you into the ground. That's what it wants to do. So that's a thought. Every landing was quite exciting. And here you are coming down to land. You have to put your feet back out of the way. On the protective area for you to get that nose to come up. If it doesn't come up for some reason, you're good. It's just you get a face plant in the sand or rocks, or whatever's down there. And Marcus commented on that. He said that was the hardest thing to do. To put your feet back to get that nose up to land because that's the last thing you wanted to do. You want to keep your feet out in front of so to land on in case things went wrong, which they often did. That was the hardest thing about the landing is getting your feet back to pick, to pick the nose up to flare. But these guys had guts. They really did. And dedication. Uh, one thing that, that uh, I did find interesting, his total flight time is is uh, estimated to be right around five hours total. So he had 2,000 flights. Right. So, the you know, you think 2,000 flights and it's you think about that, but, you know. Adventure in seconds, not, not minutes. Right. Exactly, yeah. And so it also begs the question, did he have somebody on the ground who was stopwatching it or how how he tracked? Um, I imagine somebody had a stopwatch. Some friend was recording how long he's in the air, probably something like that. Just for that scientific? Yeah, he would have. That's the sort of thing he would have done, kept track of how long he's in the air. It's interesting. um, In terms of flight time, he used to do talks on Curtis a lot. And he flew his June bug in 1908, July 4th, 1908 made the first 
kilometer flight in the United States. He got the Scientific American Prize for it. But he flew this thing almost a mile, 5,080 feet or something like that. Kept it in the air, went way past the kilometer mark. I asked people, how many hours do you suppose Curtis had when he flew that June bug under his belt? Nobody has any clue, of course, but it's, he wouldn't have even had five minutes of airtime under his belt. Wow. I mean, all these flights in before, there weren't that many. The White Wing, and the, the, of course, he didn't fly the Red Wing at all. The White Wing made a couple thousand foot flights, length, thousand feet. is in the air for 30 seconds or something. He's in the air for 46 seconds making that flight in the June bug to cover that mile. So he had to have been doing doing a fairly decent clip then to... Uh, yeah, it was do a fairly good clip. Um, 60, 70 miles an hour probably. Back then, Todd, they, they just thought their way through it. You're sitting there, you've got this control, you lean from side to side to work the ailerons, you turn the wheel to work the rudder, and of course, wheel four and back is, is the pitch. So Curtis's system was different also. And, you know, he had just a few minutes of trying this, and here he gets this thing in the air and keeps it more or less, more or less straight and level for that distance to get himself almost a mile. And landed safely, made a good landing, didn't crash. And you think about that, just thinking you're having the cool to keep that thing under control that far and that long with virtually no experience. I got, he got more experience after a while, it became second nature, but he literally thought his way through that whole flight. That's incredible. Yeah. Really is. Cause you know, you're 30, 40 feet in the air. That's a long ways up. It's, that's like being on a barn roof looking down. That's, that's a long way. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not a survivable fall if something goes wrong. No, uh, it's not, especially if an engine behind you. That's a little problem with these, the Curtis pushers. The engine is behind you. If you crash, the engine landed on you. You just use a you just use a cushion. So yeah. they were dangerous. But these guys are brave. They really were very brave. Mm-hmm. And I, I, they had that dream. They wanted to see. I mean, it's. I don't know how I feel every time I see an airplane go over, and I'm always I always look up at it. Oh, just, me too. And Never goes away. I think it. it yeah, every, everybody who flies is, is the same way, and a lot of people who don't. And I can only imagine these people who the only thing they could see birds in the air, and they wanted to be there with the birds so bad just to to experience that. It's a, that's a common theme. Um, I don't think Curtis is interested in birds at all. He was interested in flying as a possibly as a business. He was, of course, a successful motorcycle manufacturer at that point, and uh, he took his first flight in 1970. Flying a hot air balloon. A guy named Baldwin was using Curtis as an engine supplier for his dirigibles. They called them dirigibles back then, although they were non-rigid airships. And that's how Curtis got off the ground at Hamsport in 1970, flying a Baldwin dirigible. Then Alexander Bell came along and got a group together, and uh, it's called the AEA, the Air Aerial Experiment Association. And uh, the goal, Graham Bell's goal, was to get an airplane into the air, mutually exclusive of the Wright brothers. Now, the Wright brothers, of course, who were patenting everything and staying in relative secrecy. They flew actively up to about 1905, then put their glider, or excuse me, their airplane in a hangar for three years while they're finalizing their patents. They were terrified that people were going to copy them. I, I understand their, where they were coming from wanting to prevent that, but it, it almost oh, seems yeah. like aviation could have, if they had been more, if they'd been less concerned about that, that infringement there and the being copied, that aviation could have made a lot of really good uh, strides in those years while they were kind of taking a step back. You're absolutely correct. There's generally a, a, a spirit of sharing in aviation at that point, especially in Europe, where people look to see right. what somebody else is doing. If they like it better, they even do it too. The Wrights chose to protect their their aircraft, protect the, the science by patent. 
it's like somebody patenting a sail for a sailboat. You know, just everybody's using them. They were to try and patent it. Well, it didn't work, of course. But what it did do is the patent wars between Curtis and the Wrights, which went on until 1917, severely hampered American aviation development in this country. That's why in World War I, we did not have any actual operational fighter aircraft or bombers. But the only aircraft, that, American aircraft, that were used heavily in World War I were Curtis flying boats, which was Curtis's baby, that's his thing, flying boats, and the Curtis Jenny, which is used for training. All the, all the fighters, bombers, and so on were either of French or British origin, and we flew our Lafayette Exedrill and the American pilots, mostly British, oh, and French too. But it really hampered the development of aviation, and after the war, the problems between Curtis and Rice flared up again, and the government put out an edict. They were mo they're pooling all patents, actually, in 1917. It wasn't after the war. They did not want this to continue on and continue to hamper American aircraft development. So that was put to put to rest by the end of World War One. And then, of course, our industry took off. But anyway, back to Lillian Tall. A dedication like we seldom see. I mean, just this what he was trying to do and, and did accomplish it. All those people that we've been talking about, the, you know, Langley and the Wright Brothers, Chanute, they were all, they did what they did because of uh, Lillian Tall. The, the fact that Aerodynamicists today are still referring to, to uh, Lillian Tall's numbers. That's significant. It means he really yeah, was absolutely. on the right track. People didn't realize it at the time, but he was. But once again, he and Schnute both shared in the idea that they were aiming towards gliders as a means of flying, whereas Wrights and Curtis and others were actually aiming at using an engine to get there. Now, right. it would have evolved. The technology that developed by Lillian Tall and by Schnute also obviously applied to powered aircraft. So it's all part of the mix. You, you can't say that any one individual invented the airplane. You just can't. It's, just not, it's absolutely not true. Everybody was working together, and, and yeah. it wouldn't have happened without a lot of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is uh, Otto Lilienthal, is, he's very well known in the soaring community? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. I was going to say, as as a powered pilot, powered flight pilot, um, I was reading about the Wright brothers the first time that I saw his sure. name. And... Yep. I had, before that point, I'd never heard of him, so I was really surprised how how much of an impact he had on aviation. Oh and yeah, start looking yeah. into it, and I feel like that's something that it, it almost seems like when you you get into powered flight, everything starts with the Wright brothers. Nobody wants to talk about how the Wright brothers got to where they were. So I think it's important to, to look back. If if there was uh, somebody wants to get involved in in soaring, what would uh, what would your advice to them be? How would they get started? Well, um, do a search on soaring clubs in the United States. A little bit of research, which today is easier than ever. Um, you can find this, where there's a club near you somewhere. There probably will be, especially out west where you are. There's, there's a lot of soaring out there in California and Mexico and so on. Find where the nearest club is, commercial operations. Some people pay a little more to go to commercial operations like, like a regular flying school, get their licenses and so on, then go find the club to fly. You know, some people go to the club, join them. You get instruction for less and lower costs and so on, but you're expected to work to help operate, help do the operation, move gliders around, clean up, do maintenance and so on. That's how I got started. Would you say that being a um, being involved with soaring actually makes you a, a better pilot in powered aircraft? I that's been said many, many times. It gives you a feel for the aircraft that you're not going to have um, when you learn to fly just power. It gives you more of appreciation. You're more likely to do coordinated turns, and ha aircraft handling might be better. Not necessarily always, but it'll help one be a better pilot. No question about it. You know more. You know more about the handling of the aircraft, the glider. 
You have to use a rudder a lot more effectively. Uh, this museum, uh, it's been around for 50, 50, a little over 50 years now, 52 years to be exact, uh, dedicated to the promotion of soaring and, of, of, and the history of soaring in the United States. Okay. Now, I know there's a, a website if people want to learn more about the museum. Uh, are you guys on social media at all? Instagram yeah, or Facebook? We, we have a website. We're on, we have a Facebook page. Uh, you just Google National Story Museum, uh, Elmira, New York, and you'll get our website immediately. It's right at the top. Okay. And I'll also put it in the show notes so if somebody wants to come check it out, then they'll... Uh... So, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on being uh, in Vermont in November. Um, so oh. I don't know what my transportation situation is going to look like. If you slide down this through this way at all, uh, we're here. We're open year-round. And uh, shoot me an email if there's any chance you come this way. Yeah. Give it to us to work. That'd be awesome. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking to me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, I had a good time. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Plaid Pilot Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't, shoot me an email at todd at theplaidpilot.com or DM me on Instagram at theplaidpilot. I'd love to hear your suggestions to make the show better. Y'all stay safe this week, and as my wife always says, fluffy landings.